secure, secure. We all, we all want to be secure. We all want to move about this life being okay with stuff, with us, with the way things are, with uh, the things around us. We want to be secure in our relationships, right? Um, we want uh, to not be bothered when we uh, see a friend's Instagram feed and, and they're out doing something without us. We want to not be bothered by that, but we are. Um, we want to... We want to not be bothered by the fact that there's um, group chats out there and there's plans being made and we aren't part of that. We want, to, we want that not to bother us, but it, but it does because we're insecure. Um, we're insecure about our families. We're insecure about what our parents think about us because we have siblings who have outperformed us. Uh, we have parents who are never satisfied with our best. And we're insecure about that. We're insecure about our bodies. Really insecure about our bodies. Um, we're big in the wrong places and small in the wrong places. And so we want to lose 15 pounds so that so that our that part won't be that big or so our thighs won't touch or guys want to put on 15 pounds so they don't look, look like such boys. And we're insecure about, about that. Uh, we're insecure about money. Right? Some of you... Uh, you have families who, who don't have a lot of money, and you're here at TU, and you didn't get that scholarship. And so you're having to take out a lot of loans, and you're insecure about that. And it's really not something you talk about with your friends. And, uh, but you want to do things like go to spring break or go to summer conference, but that's $100 and $350. And, and every little weekend, or every weekend, there's something you can do. There's $10 here and $15 there. And you don't really have the money for that. <coughs> But you don't want to be singled out, so what do you do? You, you open up a credit card and you, and you put it on the credit card. And you push that bill down the road a little bit. But it mounts up. And it mounts up more and more. And we get insecure about the fact that I don't know how I'm going to pay that off. As it regards spring break and summer conference, come talk to me. I'll help you. I want you to go. But the rest of that is just there. And we, we don't know what to do with it. And look, there's a thousand other... We could spend tonight and the next week up here talking about the things that we're insecure about. If, if it is part of our life, there is a good chance that we're insecure about it in some way at some level. And um, what I want to tell you is that um, security is evasive. Security is, of evasive, is evasive in this world. But it wasn't always that way. It wasn't always that way. In, in the beginning... When God created the world and it put Adam and Eve in that world, there was no insecurity. It was a perfect world. Just imagine what it would be like if you weren't consumed by all the stuff that you're consumed about. That was them. That was their world. Um, there was no Instagram. There was no Snapchat. You were never being left out. Um, there, was, there were no clothes. So like, there was no clothing brands to compare to. Like, they were just naked. Uh, it would have been awesome. Uh, there were no cars. There was no... Like, nothing. It was a perfect world. But that security didn't last long, did it? Right there, very early in the Bible, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and all the insecurities started floating in right away. And we see that they were naked and ashamed. So they hid from each other. They were insecure about their bodies. Sounds familiar. They were, they were afraid of God. They were insecure about His presence and what to do with Him. And so they hid from Him. We see it right there in the beginning. The insecurities just come flooding in. 
And from, and from that point on, every single person who's ever lived is living in a world that's full of insecurity. And the people that John wrote this letter to, they would have had it too. They would have had the normal stuff that you and I had, minus 2,000 years, whatever that looked like back then. But they were further, they were insecure about being Christians because they were, being, they were Christians in a world and in a culture in an empire that was killing them. If they were to say that Jesus is Lord, Iesus Hakurios, Jesus is Lord, rather than Kaiser Hakurios, that Caesar is Lord, if they would have said that, they would have been killed on the spot. And they were, and their friends were, and their family were. So, so they were being um, murdered, they were being martyred for following Jesus. You think they were secure in their faith? Not at all. Massive insecurities in their world. They needed the same thing that we need. They needed something. They needed, they needed a word from God. They needed some kind of message which could give them security in a world that was punishing them. And God actually doesn't. He gives it to them through this vision. He says, you want to be secure. You want to have a way to live in this world and not be paralyzed by all the what ifs and all the fears and all the not being this or, or being that. You want to live in a world where that isn't just consuming you? And listen to what he says here in Revelation 7. We're going to read the first half on the front end and we'll come into the last half toward the end. So right there, 7-1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth, that, that no wind might blow on the earth or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Maybe you uh, were here last week and maybe you're at the game. That's fun. Uh, what we saw last week and where this passage fits in is right kind of at the end of last week's. And what we saw last week was that 
Um, ever since Jesus came to earth, ever since he was a, a person walking around on earth, that there has been a great pressure. There has been a great, uh, John actually uses the word tribulation in verse 14. And what that word means in Greek is just pressure. That when Jesus came from heaven to earth, he brought with him what's called the kingdom of God. And he came and brought that kingdom to earth. And that kingdom of God is colliding with the kingdom of earth. And that collision, that collision is causing pressure. Tribulation. Last week we looked at that tribulation. What it looks like when the kingdom of God comes is that Christians are going to suffer. And we saw that there were Christians who will be killed and martyred for the faith. And we saw that there are others who will just endure great suffering. And massive suffering. Terrible stuff. It's the, the way to think about it is like two tectonic plates that are coming together. Right? You remember that from like 6th grade geography or whatever, earth science? That they're coming together and at the point of collision, the pressure builds up, builds up, builds up until it ruptures forth. And there are earthquakes and there's mountain ranges and all this stuff. John, is, he's invoking that language and that imagery. And he's saying when, when the kingdom of heaven, when the kingdom of God collides with the kingdom of this world, there is going to be pressure and everybody's going to feel it. And what he's saying in this passage is he's saying that the church exists on those fault lines. And so it's really going to suck. It's really going to suck for Christians. Because we're the ones who will be at the apex, at the very center of that persecution, of that pressure. And John gets this vision because Jesus wants them to see that there is a way that you can stand secure in the midst of the pressure. And the first way we see that is we have to focus in on the God who seals us. The God who seals us in the midst of that pressure. So what do I mean by that? Look at those first four verses right there. John gets this vision. There there are four angels who are about to set out and turn up the pressure in the world. Right? And they're about to be released. And yet before they can do that, there's another angel who rises up and says this in verse 3. He says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Okay? And then John turns and he starts to hear a description of those who would be sealed. And he goes on in verses 5 through 8 and it lists these out. There's 144,000 people who would be sealed. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Is John saying, is Jesus saying to John that... There will only be 144,000 people who make it, who, who end up in glory with God forever. Is that it? What is it about this number? Let's look at it. If you haven't noticed yet, you will continue to notice that numbers play a big role in the book of Revelation. They're important. And they're, they're used very intentionally. But I must say... They are always not you. They're not always used literalistically. They are not always exactly as they say right there. Meaning, when John sees 144,000, he does not mean that to mean that is the entire number of people. Hear me out. See if you'll hang. Right there, um, in, in Revelation 4, we've already seen the number 12 show up. 
The number 12 is representative of the Old Testament people of God, the 12 sons of Israel. He actually goes out and lists some of them right there. Okay, so the the Old Testament people of God were represented by the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the New Testament people of God are represented by the 12 apostles that surrounded Jesus. And from those 12 on each side, Old and New Testament, the people of God grew. Right? They were sent out and they grew. In Revelation 4, we see 12 plus 12. You have 24 elders surrounding the throne, representing all of God's people around the throne. But here in Revelation 7, we see 12 times 12. Not 12 plus 12, but 12 times 12. That the people of God have multiplied. That it's growing exponentially. But it doesn't just say 12 times 12. He then, he says 12 times 12. But think of it more than that, 10 times that. 1,440 people. That's a big number to them. He's saying it's getting bigger. But then he takes it again and says 10 more, 10,000, sorry, 10 times 10 more, right? Is it 14,400? It's a whole bunch of people. And he said, but that's not even big enough. Multiply it by 10 again. And what do you have? You have verse 9. A great multitude that no one can number. What Jesus is helping John to see is that his redemption, his, his salvation is being spread immensely more than we can even imagine. And the point of that is very simple. It's this. That there are not going to be just a few believers that make it. It is going to be massive. That the crowd that surrounds the throne of Jesus worshiping him forever is not like you and your buddies like getting around a campfire and doing this thing. It's not like RUF here in Tulsa. It's not even like all the churches in Tulsa. It is a number that can't be numbered. It's unimaginable, he's saying. 144,000. He's saying, let that blow your minds. But it's not just a huge number. It's also a diverse number. It's a diverse number. It's a diverse people. Cheer up. Heaven is not going to be as white as this room is. Amen. All day long. It's not. It's going to be so brown that we will be uncomfortable, most of us. It is. How do we know this? Look down verse 5 through 8. What might seem strange when you look at that list, it might seem strange that I say it's going to be diverse because right there John says it's the 12 sons of Israel. And you might be thinking, well, it just looks like a list of Israelites. It's all a bunch of Jewish people. But there's a couple things in that list that, that matter. Okay? This is, uh, I, I wouldn't have known this on my own, but in studying it, I found it out. That lists... Lists, anytime that a list of names is given in the Bible or a genealogy or anything like that, they are given in very particular orders. And if the order is messed up at all, it matters. Okay, so this list of the sons of Jacob, also his name was Israel, the sons of Israel, every other time in the Bible that his sons are listed out, Reuben is the first. Because Reuben was the firstborn son, and that had all kinds of implications. For him and his responsibilities and the inheritance and all this stuff. But notice, who is first in this list? 
Judah. Who is Judah? How did he leapfrog Reuben in importance? He leapfrogged Reuben in importance because the Messiah, Jesus, was the lion of the tribe of Judah. He came from Judah's family. And so when Jesus tells John this vision, he reinterprets that list and and leapfrogs Judah to the top. What he's saying is that there's a new day, that my people are changing, that something new and something different is happening in the way that I count my people. But there's a second thing that happens in there. It leaves out Dan and includes Manasseh. If you go down to the end, it says Manasseh. Now, again, who's that? Well, Manasseh was a son, but Dan is the son that is normally included in that. Okay? So Dan gets left out. Manasseh gets brought in. What does that mean? It means that God is bringing in people who aren't normally considered to be in. And all the bells and whistles should be going off. They were for them, for people who understood this. What this means is that it's not just a nice, neat little Jewish family anymore. It's Jews and Gentiles. Okay, now let's take that even a step further. Why would this have been so important? And why does this matter for us? Because in the very beginning of Genesis, not right in the beginning, but chapter 17, 15 through 17, God is making a promise to this man named Abraham. And he tells Abraham that that I'm going to create from you, I'm going to use you as the father of many nations, and I'm going to create a huge nation out from your line. Basically, you're going to have a huge family, Abraham. You will be the father of many nations. And what we see here in Revelation 7, and we'll see it again in Revelation 22, is that God's promise to Abraham to make him a family of many nations of the world, not just Jews, not just white people, not just brown people, everybody, a family from all tongues, tribes, people, and nations, John is seeing that that has come true. When he gets a peek into heaven, he is seeing that God's people are from all nations, and he says it right there. So what does that mean for you and me? What do we do with that? That's cool, right? The church isn't just American. Um, It's not just white, and that's kind of neat. It's kind of edgy, right? It's bigger than that. What that means is that God isn't favoring America. We've, We've been blessed in ways that we don't even understand because we're American. We have privileges out the ears because we are American. God is not American. And that ought to really excite us. Because though we live in a wonderful country and have enjoyed immense privileges, our country has done things that are against the kingdom of God. And it has held up policies and there are things at work in our world right now that are anti the kingdom of God. And I hope that encourages some of you as you look at our country even today and through history and have been rather discouraged. Because God's program is bigger than what we see right around us in our immediate world. But it's also encouraging to us because God is actually doing this. He's actually drawing people from all nations of the world. Look, a lot of times people want to critique Christianity and say, well, the only reason you're a Christian is because you were born in America. 
And Ryan, you grew up in a Christian home. Well, I mean, I, I was. That's true. I was born in America. I grew up in a Christian home for some of you. Right? I live in Tulsa. There's a church. Every time I can throw a rock, I hit a church. But friends, we have to know that Christianity has not always been centralized in America. The, the center of Christianity is not America. It's not. It's somewhere in South America or in Africa or in or China. That's where you want to talk about where a lot of people are Christians. Go there. Right? Maybe it used to be in America, but it's on the move. Christianity is the only one of the big world religions that has its power center moving. Because God is a global God seeking to gather a global people to himself. And he's doing it. <clears throat> Jesus looked at people in his day in John 6.44 and said, no one, can come to the Father unless the, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. But friends, know this, God is drawing a lot of people to Jesus. And they probably don't look just like you, and that's great news. It's great news for us. God keeps His promises. He made a big promise to Abraham, and Jesus shows John this picture that He's keeping it. So when He makes you promises about no condemnation for you now that you're in Christ, He's keeping it. He's saying, I don't... Look, if you trust in Christ, I have nothing else to give you. That I have no more wrath to give you. I'm not mad at you anymore. Do you believe that? It's a promise. God answers His promises. They're all yes in Jesus. The next thing we see in here is that He seals them. He seals them. Now, what is this seal that He puts on them? It's a tattoo right behind your left ear. Y'all don't have that? It's not. Um, what is the seal that God... Is it something we see? No. No, what is this seal? Does this show up anywhere else in the Bible? Thankfully it does. Paul says in Ephesians 1.13, In Him, Jesus... You also were sealed when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, Second Corinthians 1, 21, 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the seal of faith. And He is the one who carries you to the end. The Holy Spirit is God's seal that He puts on you, friends. And it's the seal that carries you to the end. The God who seals us will hold us secure, is what this means. This means that every time you mess up, and you binge on porn, or you stay out too late and you do those things you shouldn't have done, or you cheat on that test, or you yell at your parents, or you judge that person, or you gossip about this person. Every time you screw up in big or small ways, God is not you're not moving in and out of God's favor if you're in Christ. He has sealed you. He sealed you. You're secure in Him. He's committed to you. I, uh, I read a story this week in the New York Times about a man named B.J. Miller. B.J. Miller was a student at Princeton. He's now in his 40s. But when he was a student at Princeton, uh, he and some friends were out late one night. 
Uh, they were drinking, they were out late, I think at like 3 or 4 a.m., and BJ hopped up on a, on a train, like a train car, railroad car, and when he got to the top of that railroad car, an electric, uh, an electric bolt, electricity from a nearby wire arced to his watch, and 11,000 volts of electricity went through his body. He woke up about two weeks later in the hospital. And he was so charred that he, he, couldn't, he couldn't even imagine what was happening around him. And he says one of his first cognizant memories was he was being wheeled down the hallway to one of his surgeries. And, and in that room, in that corridor, were some friends and family. It was the first time they had been able to see him. And here's what he said about that. They all dared to show up. They all dared to look at me. They were proving that I was lovable even when I couldn't see it. Friends, that is what the Holy Spirit does in you. God's seal is His proof that He loves you even when you can't see it. Even when you look at you and there's seemingly nothing all that lovable about you. After you've done those things, God is looking at you and saying, I see the seal My spirit's in you. I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. Come on, let's change. Let's go this way instead. He's committed to you. He's sealed you. He's so committed to you that even when you give up on you, He doesn't. He sealed you. And it's that sealing that leads to our healing. Let's read the second part of this passage, beginning in verse 13. And one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, God is the one who seals us. It's not our good efforts. It's not our attempts to be moral. It's not our our trying to be better than the people around us so that hopefully God will tilt the scales in our way at the end of time. God draws us. God seals us. God preserves us. And God is going to heal us. Look at the passage. What does that healing look like? John's he's he's saying, Jesus, I've got to write this letter to people who are struggling. What do I tell them about the ones who make it? Who makes it? What can I tell them? Verse 14. These are the ones who are coming out. Not who came out of the Great Tribulation. The number's not full. This isn't a past event. Not will come out. The Great Tribulation isn't a future event. He's saying these are the ones who are coming out right now. Jesus is singing to heaven and there are people being brought in right now. So that means that there's still hope. That there's still hope for you. If you've blown it in ways that you just think that God could never love you. No, today's the day of salvation. Repent, turn to Him. Their people are still coming in. What else do we know? What else can I tell them, Jesus? Verse 15, He who sits on the throne will shelter them. 
Look, God seals his people so we can be secure. But it doesn't mean that in this life we're going to be safe. We saw it last week, we're not. Security doesn't mean safety. We will suffer. We will be persecuted. We will be laughed at. We will be made fun of. The tribulation is real. The pressure is real. But friends, listen. One day, someday, you will be sheltered. You'll be brought home is what he's saying. That this is the war. This life is the battle. That time is the rest. We are aliens in this strange place right now. We're wondering. It doesn't really feel like home because it's just weird to live in this world. We're citizens of heaven, some of us, but we're living in this this kingdom of the world. Jesus is saying, I know it's hard, but one day I'm going to shelter you. One day you'll be home. And guess what? Who will be waiting for you? He will. Verse 17. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus is there. The Lamb is there. What about that Lamb? He's the one who is slain so that you could come. They're wearing, the people who are coming in are wearing white robes because they've been cleaned by the blood of the Lamb. Friends, your entrance is because Jesus' blood has cleansed you. you. You no longer, God doesn't see sin in you if Jesus has died for you. So the Lamb is there. What, what is the Lamb doing? He's giving them access. He's leading them to springs of living water. What happens to living water? God is there. And God is healing them. He's taking their tears away. Every tear from every eye, it says. This world's hard. There are real tears that happen in this world because the pressure is there. It's there between friendships. It's there between family. It's there between employees and employers. It's there between races. It's there between economic Strata, it is there in every way. And one day, someday, the tears will be gone, y'all. Jesus is going to lead us to the the living water. You see, it's, um, it's that seal of God. It's the seal of God that we need if we're ever going to have security. If we're ever going to be able to live in this world in a different way, we need the seal of God. We need His Spirit. How do we get His Spirit? We believe in His Son. How do we believe in the Son? We look and say, I need Him. I'm messed up. I'm a sinner. I need Him. And friends, He's going to lead us to that living water. Where else do we know about living water in the Bible? In John chapter 4, Jesus, we see this interaction between Jesus and a Samaritan woman. And they're at a well. And she's out there in the heat of the day. And if you know anything about that story, that's not the time that women would have normally been at that well. She was an outcast. The women of the, of the city would have come out socializing in the morning and having a good time while it was cool. She is out there at noon. It's hot. And she comes to Jesus and they're interacting. And, and Jesus is actually talking to her, which blew her mind. Right? She's insecure about the fact that she's a woman and this man is addressing her. And, she, and furthermore, he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. And you hear it right off the bat. She's like, why are you a, a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan woman? She's got ethnic shame. She's got ethnic insecurity. She has gendered insecurity. And and maybe you know the story. It goes on. And in the course of that, 
it's uncovered that this woman is, um, she's a very promiscuous woman. And she's had more than five husbands. She's, she's sexually messed up, insecure, and Jesus knows this. And he goes right to it. And he doesn't shame her, but he does expose her and say, yeah, I'm going I'm to pull back that curtain on your life. And catch this interaction as he's talking to her. He says, if you know, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. They're at a well. There's this water metaphor thing going on. The woman said to him, where do you get that living water? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of the water of this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? Could this be our Savior is what she's saying? Y'all, when Jesus says He's going to lead us to living water, what He's saying is, I'm going to send My Spirit inside of you and that He is going to become in you a wellspring of life. Because here's what's true about your insecurity and mine. Is at the end of the day, it leaves us parched. It's exhausting. Our lives feel fractured. Our relationships are torn because we're so obsessed about being in or not being in. We look at our bodies and we're so obsessed about being this or that or not this or that. We're so insecure about everything that it just paralyzes us. It cripples us. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you the living water from the inside out. It will heal you. So friends, that's what's being held out in Revelation 7. It's the offer of of the living water. It's the offer of the seal. You come to Jesus, you get His Spirit, you get the seal, you get the living water, you get healing, you get security, you get peace with God. And from that peace, you're like this woman. You go back home, you go back into your dorm, you go back wherever and say, let me tell you about this person that I've met. Could he be the answer to everything we've been looking for? And the message from this passage passage loud and clear is yes. Everything you've ever wanted and more. It's an invitation to Jesus as it is every week. Come to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that You would do what You say You do and You draw people. You work in our hearts. We can't explain it. We don't know how to make sense of it. Lord, sometimes we just realize that we need you. And I pray that if there's anybody who realizes that they need you tonight in a big way, I pray that you would meet them. That they would realize that you're there for the taking. And Lord, for those of us who have um, known you for a long time, we still need you. We have not graduated from our need. We still need your grace. We still need the living water. We still need to be reminded that we are sealed and that you are committed to us even in the midst of our stupidity in shame, in rebellion, you love us. Convince us of that now by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.